Nice. Democrat Laura Curran, the first woman elected county executive on Long Island, breaking a glass ceiling and vowing to break with the past. Laura Curran joining us live. It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran. Entertaining and informative. Thought-provoking conversations that get right to the point. Observers say her future is bright. I'm here to tell us more about it, Laura Curran. Now here's Laura Curran. Hi, everyone. So I'm really happy that you're listening to this show today because I need a little bit of consolation. I'm a little bit sad because my beloved Islanders just went down five to two uh, against the Hurricanes. And we're going back to uh, Carolinas for the next one. We won't have home ice advantage. It's going to be pretty rough. So anyway. But you're with me, and I'm with you, and all is okay with the world. Uh, By the way, I'm going to want to hear from you later in the show. Please call 800-848-9222, 848-WABC. I was listening in, eavesdropping, you could say, to Andrew Giuliani's show, which comes on right before Cut to the Chase. And I've been so fascinated by hearing people talk about DeSantis v. Trump. It's these two big personalities, the chattering class. If you're watching cable news at all, this has been quite a discussion comparing these two guys. So DeSantis was 14 points ahead. He is now 13 points behind Trump. That's a 27-point drop within a couple of months. What's that about? And I think it's because it has something to do with authenticity. So DeSantis had this brand. He reopened during COVID. He's got great finances in the county. He's seen as someone who could really operate things, really run things without a lot of drama. Now it seems like he's sort of twisting himself into a pretzel to uh, appeal to who he thinks, I don't know if it's the MAGA crowd or trying to outflank Trump on something or other. You know, some focus group, some poll told him to do this. And it just feels, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel authentic. And nobody's going to be more Trumpy than Trump. So I don't know if you can, if you, if there, if you can do that. But anyway, speaking of authenticity, um, I was doing a little bit of TV on Friday, and I happened to run into Rep- Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace of South Carolina at one of the networks in the green room. And I've been an admirer of her. I am a Democrat, but I feel like she represents what I hope is the future of politics in America. So she has shown a lot of courage. For speaking up, say, as a veteran and from a veteran's perspective, um, advocating for sensible federal cannabis legalization. Not exactly in lockstep with her party, but very outspoken. Also, as a woman and the only woman in the South Carolina delegation, uh, she's shown courage in speaking up for women's reproductive rights. She is pro-life, but it does not believe the government has the right to deny uh, the procedure to victims of rape, for instance. Uh, there's another young Democrat congressperson on the Democratic side. Uh, his name is Pat Ryan. He's from New York. Now, we saw this red wave sweep a lot of our re- Democratic congresspeople in purple districts out. They've been replaced by Republicans, not Pat Ryan. So both he and Nancy Mace, young veterans representing purple districts who are very much authentically themselves and aren't so worried about bending to the will of the national leaders, but about what their constituents want. So what sometimes when I feel a little bit hopeless about politicians in general, I think about politicians like Nancy Mace and Pat Ryan, and it does give me some hope. Anyway, we got a big show. There's always so much to talk about. Uh, 
In a little bit, we're going to untangle the methapristone drama. I'll talk to a provider. Then we talk to John Halpin of the Liberal Patriot Substack about why 49% of American adults now identify as political independents. So that's only a quarter each, identifying strongly as Republican or Democrat. We get our weekly dose of Albany budget update from Senator, State Senator Monica Martinez of Long Island and my chat with NYPD Commissioner Keyshawn Sewell. All right. So speaking of reproductive rights, uh, this is something that I don't really talk about very much because as a county official, I really had no say over it. It's also a very personal issue. It's hard to talk about. It inspires a lot of emotion. Uh, But wherever you are on the choice spectrum, and it is a wide spectrum with many nuances, you will have seen over the past couple of weeks, and you're probably confused as I was by the mephapristone saga. Uh, It seems like all of a sudden this abortion drug has become a household name. I'd never really heard of it before. Uh, But so far, in broad strokes, this is the saga. It all started in November in Amarillo, Texas, when a U.S. District Court judge suspended the approval of this drug. It was approved in 2000. Um, and it's since since been used relative, quite safely, actually, by about 5 million women. Then the fifth, uh, U.S. Fifth Court of Appeals, fifth, sorry, I'm bungling that up. The fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, based in New Orleans, ordered the FDA not to suspend it, but to limit its use. Uh, then the Biden administration asked the court, Supreme Court, to intervene. And on Friday, this was the big news, the Supreme Court blocked the Texas ban, the Texas judges ban. And the case is going back to the Fifth Circuit, due in court next month. All right. That was very long winded. Leah Copland is a nurse midwife and director of clinical operations for Abortion on Demand, which is the largest U.S. based telehealth provider. Leah, did I get that right? Yep, you did. Okay, that's a relief. Um, were you relieved or surprised by the Friday Supreme Court move? Definitely both. Um, very relieved just to know that we can keep mifepristone and misoprostol, um, specifically mifepristone that you mentioned that's been used for about 5 million people in the past 20 years. We know it's very safe and we can keep providing it in the states where it is still legal to have an abortion. Um, and also surprised. I was not sure what the Supreme Court would do. You know, overturning Dobbs back in, uh, sorry, overturning Roe back in June was was certainly a shock to the movement, but um, but very relieved overall. So are a lot of the patients that you work with, are they surprised that there is a medical alternative or do they feel that they have to go, you know, medicinal approval, I should say? Um, so I think that, you know, there's, even though medication abortion has been around for 20 years, there's still a lot of people who didn't know much about it. Um, and we find a lot of patients actually who find us for care and, you know, they just start Googling about abortion and, and learning about their options. And sometimes they didn't even know that this existed to do an abortion with pills. I think a lot of people have images of an aspiration abortion um, in a clinic and they are often surprised to know that this is as safe, as straightforward, and um, we're able to get, the, get it to them in, in just a day or two. One thing that was really interesting is that Texas judge said that the FDA didn't properly weigh the risks and benefits uh, when it approved the drug in the year 2000, kind of implying that it might not be safe. 
Uh, but we see it is compared to things like penicillin, like Viagra, it's actually many times safer. Yes, it, it absolutely is. And, you know, there's over 100 studies that have included um, over 125,000 people, uh, rigorous scientific evidence that has looked at the profile of mifepristone. Um, we know that it is much, much safer than full-term pregnancies. Um, and, you know, some of the evidence that the judge cited in his ruling uh, was based on blog posts and science that was, you know, anonymous reporting from people. So on one side, we have, you know, rigorous science and evidence. And on the other side, we have sort of some anecdotal information that he cited. Um, so we definitely have the science and research on our side to, to, uh, to talk about its safety. How did your job change after the Supreme Court overturned Roe since Dobbs last June, almost a year ago? Yeah. So, well, we, you know, because telehealth is regulated in some states um, around abortion, there were already many states that we weren't able to provide care in. So um, those states are now many of the states where it's not legal to have an abortion at all. Um, So we did have some states where we could no longer provide care. Um, But again, the states that have allowed telehealth medication abortion tend to be the states that have the most progressive laws around abortion. Um, And I will just point out that there is a non-U.S.-based provider of telehealth medication abortions, Aid Access, and they are still providing care even to states where it is not illegal to have an abortion. So um, it is possible for folks to get that. It's just that they are at real risk of of criminalization. and so there's, uh, it's just important for folks to know that, that it's still possible to get the meds. It's just um, not necessarily legal. Right. And to use these medications, it has to be very early in the term, right? Well, they're actually very safe and effective up to 11 weeks, probably longer. Uh, some providers are going to 12 weeks, and um, in other countries they go even longer. So uh, it is very safe for most of the first trimester of pregnancy, for sure. Hmm. So this is such a political hot topic. It's such a football. It's politicized incredibly. Does that make your job harder? Definitely. Um, You know, first of all, we deal with just so much misinformation out there. Um, Abortion tends to be something that people are not comfortable talking with for good reason. It's very stigmatized. And even though one in four people end up ha- who are able to get pregnant or have a have an abortion at some point in their life or have multiple abortions in their lives. Um, it's really something that you don't necessarily know that other people have had unless they share that with you. So people think it's really rare. Um, and then, you know, a lot of what we do is just let people know this is really normal. This is really common. This is really safe. And it's really OK to make this decision if this is what you need in, and want in your life right now. I was very surprised to learn that medication abortion accounts for more than half of abortions in the country, something like 53%, right? Yes, and that has really changed over the years. Um, But definitely, I would say it's just going up and up. Um, Some of it is because of the ease, the time uh, for people to be able to get the pills. Um, And I think that certainly telehealth and some of the ways that we dispense it now have made it easier for folks to get it. They don't need to necessarily take a day off work, find childcare all of those things that needed to happen in the past, um, and they can get on their get on with their lives. So I was speaking with someone, a woman, actually, who is pro-life, and she uh, is troubled by this 
but that this might be taken off the market because she had a miscarriage, actually, and so she was carrying a baby that had gone, and mm-hmm. this medication helped her get through that. It helped her, helped her, you know, her do what happened, what had to happen. Yes, and that's a really good point. Mifepristone is also used for miscarriages um, in some cases, and it really has become somewhat of the gold standard of care for uh, abortion and miscarriage. Um, it is There are other ways to do a medication abortion with just the second medication, mesoprostol. Um, so that's not to say that that's not happening, but it is, the, it is the gold standard, and it's what we want available to people who need it. So the thought of it being off the market would certainly impact a lot of folks. So telehealth medicine in general really took off. It was sort of starting to evolve and get bigger before the pandemic, but really took off during the pandemic. Were you doing this telehealth kind of care pre-pandemic? Yeah, so actually I, uh, I worked in a clinic, an uh, abortion clinic in my state for, for several years, and we were part of a clinical trial that looked at a telehealth model even prior to the pandemic. So we were already actually dispensing pills through the mail, both in Maine, where I work, as well as in New York. Um, mm-hmm. So this existed, but it was all under a, a clinical trial. Um, once the pandemic hit, we started to say, well, wait a second, we've got a lot of this research, and we also have some research demonstrating that it's safe to do an abortion without an ultrasound if people know their dates really well. Um, Why don't we just uh, go ahead and do this? And I was lucky enough to be part of um, a cohort of researchers and providers who came up with a protocol very early in the pandemic that we disseminated to, um, to a lot of providers so that they could start doing this care um, and so that people didn't have to enter a clinic. You know, if you think of those early days of the, of the pandemic, they didn't have to come in. They didn't have to interface with folks. We could get them their pills safely um, outside. So, um, so, yeah, and then we subsequently did research with uh, about 14 clinics in the country and over 3,000 people who had medication abortions this way, and it, it indicated that it was just as safe and effective to do it this way. So we have the research to back it up. Leah Coplin, before I let you go, if if this goes away for any reason, if the courts decide, as you know, we see the courts becoming so politicized, really on both sides, what's what's going to happen? Well, one thing we know is that people will continue to have abortions. Um, that you know, that's happened forever. It will continue to happen. Women have always done uh, taken care of their reproductive health from yeah. for millennia, whether it was herbs or whatever. Exactly. They found a way. Yes, and we have a lot of great support. There's a lot of abortion funds, practical support networks who are already moving people from states where it's illegal to states where it's legal to get the care they need. There's also, um, again, the second medication used in a medication abortion, mesoprostol, that can also accomplish an abortion. And in fact, that's used in many, many countries. So um, abortions are not going to stop no matter what the Fifth Circuit says, no matter what the Supreme Court says. Um, Yes, it might become more difficult, but we have... um, a lot of energy and a lot of people working very hard to make sure people can get the care they need and deserve. Leah Coplin, thank you so much. Uh, Leah is a nurse midwife and director of clinical operations for abortion on demand. And I really want to thank you for coming on and talking about this in a very common sense way. Thank you for having me. Listeners, stay tuned. We're going to talk to the liberal patriots, John Halpin, about why so many Americans are becoming independent voters. We're going to talk to Monica Martinez for my my weekly dose of Albany update. And then we're going to talk to Keyshawn Sewell as well. Stay tuned to Cut to the Chase. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Laura Curran joining us live. It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran on 77 WABC. Welcome back to Cut to the Chase. Yes, I am mourning the Isles loss, but it's not over yet. They have another chance. It's not over till it's over. Uh, I, you know, my husband actually went to the game. I The last couple times I went to the game, they won. So, anyway. What are you going to do? So I am really happy to talk to this next guest. His name is John Halpin. He's one of the co-founders of the Substack called The Liberal Patriot. If you don't know what Substack is, don't be embarrassed. It's an online platform for subscription newsletters uh, where writers basically send their work right to your inbox. It's pretty cool. So I subscribed to The Liberal Patriot over a year ago. Uh, and I was I, I, it felt like a very safe space for me because it's right in the sweet spot of where I am politically uh, liberal in the old fashioned sense of the word, uh, all about pur- pluralism, reason, secularism. And I was so excited to see that I'm not alone. And I sort of found uh, a little publication for my tribe. John Halpin, do you hear that a lot? People who are Dems and proud to be Dems, but disillusioned with the way their party is going. Uh, yeah, we hear that a fair amount. Uh, thank you for the kind words about uh, the liberal patriot. It, yeah, there's a, a number of people who don't like the direction of the party or left it a while ago. Um, you see this with institutions across the board. People are just displeased with things and they're looking for some alternative. And, you know, we kind of harken back to the old values of FDR, what we call his, his famous four freedoms, freedom of speech and worship and freedom from want and fear. That's how we think of Americanism and our our love of country and, and the patriotism we think of. So, yeah, we think there are a lot of people who um, who believe in that. And, you know, we have readers across the spectrum, but they're mostly people like yourself um, who, who are interested in that type of approach. Right. I mean, you do hear there's a certain subset of folks who were once called themselves liberal, but now they've been, quote, red pilled and they've gone completely to the other side. But that's not that's not a lot of us. Some of us are still are still hoping that the Democratic Party can represent us and represent our values. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you saw this most clearly, probably with Biden's run. I mean, you remember the the back and forth in the primaries and it was sort of strange for a while. Like, where's this party going? But Mm -hmm. then. Mainstream Democrats really put Biden over the top. And, you know, you can have qualms about some of the things he may have done as, as president on, on some things being the party leader. But, you know, he's, he's from that old ilk as well. Right. And it's it's basically what we call pro-worker, pro-family, pro-America politics. Right. And that and that's and in our mind, the best of the Democratic Party and the best of American liberalism. So that's what we defend. And, and so we're, we're finding more people want to want to read about this approach. So one of your recent newsletters, I found this very interesting. Uh, you write that a Gallup poll finds 49 percent, that's about half, a little tiny, tiny bit less than half, of U.S. adults identify as political independents. A quarter each go to folks who call themselves either Republican or Democrat. That is a big middle, and it's getting a lot bigger. 
Yeah, you know, the two parties, the leadership and I think the media ecosystem around them, they just deny this issue. And and the the data is stark. I mean, it used to be uh, more than more than a third of people would identify directly as a Democrat or Republican. It's only a quarter now, right? And, yeah. and half the country identifies as independent. You force them to make a choice. They basically split both ways and you end up with the country we have, which is sort of bifurcated. But if you dive into these voters... You know, yeah, they may lean, you know, Democratic or liberal in some things, but they may have a mix of opinions. And the current party configurations is a sort of down the line progressive Democratic Party, uh, you know, down the line sort of conservative and it's much more Trumpian Republican Party. And most people just don't fall into that. And so they're looking for alternatives. And we don't really have. Um, you all have some some keys in voting and things there. There aren't really third party options that are viable. It always plays sort of a spoiler role. So I think people are just choosing to identify as I'm not one of those two. I'm something else. And it doesn't mean they wouldn't occasionally pick a Democrat or Republican. Right. Uh, but they're basically telling everybody in, in power, you're not doing a good job representing the complexity of our views. One thing that's interesting that uh, you guys have reported a lot about is that Democrats are losing Hispanic vote and Asian vote. They are looking elsewhere. And these are the demographics that Democrats traditionally maybe take for granted. You know, new immigrants, minorities. Mm -hmm. Of course, they're going to come to us because we're supporting the little guy. We're supporting the new arrival. We're helping the working man get ahead. You know what? Why do you think why do you think we're losing our mojo there? Yeah, I mean, the the numbers are real. Uh, I mean, Trump actually improved his vote um, with Hispanic and black voters in the last election. Most people have trouble getting their head around that. It's not mm. a huge gain, but it was some gain. Most of the talk in politics for many years was the Democrats losing white working class voters, which is still real. Yeah, uh, it's regionally divided. But now it turns out that on a number of things, um, a lot of cultural issues, but a lot of it was COVID policy, too. So if you look at DeSantis's rise in Florida, uh, you know, he barely wins in 18, but he, he had a huge shift in the last election and picked up a lot of Hispanic voters. And, huge. you know, the evidence we saw was that a lot of people were upset about some dem- the Democrat- Democratic approaches on COVID and things like that. And that, um, you know, that, so that plays into it as well. And, you know, you see the fights in San Francisco or New York over schools, which, um, you know, like how how people are admitted, things of that nature. And, yeah. and so some of these working class communities, which value education, value small business work, are, are, are thinking um, about alternatives. And so, yes, they are leaving. And, you know, these margins matter a lot. It's going to be a handful of states in 24. And the Hispanic vote in Arizona will matter. Um you know, if you lose some of the black vote or, you know, you get declining turnout in places like Wisconsin uh, or Michigan or, or Pennsylvania, it's not hard to see your Republican winning. So, yeah, the Democrats need to take this seriously. It's not just you're losing white working class voters. You're losing ground with all of them. Mm-hmm. And, they, you know, you can't just replace them with hyper educated white elites. Right. They, yeah. This is the, it's not this a winning strategy. Circle. Yeah, it's causing the problem. So the values of the overeducated kind of college uh, college elites in the Democratic Party kind of repel some working class voters of all stripes. And you see the divisions we have today. I'm Laura Curran. I'm talking to the liberal, liberal patriots John Halpin, and you're listening to Cut to the Chase on 77 WABC. You had an interesting column. I can't remember who wrote it uh, for the liberal patriot recently about 
how the working class is just not excited about green energy and, you know, climate change Mm -hmm. crusading. And it's actually a bit of a turnoff. Why is that for the working class? This is my uh, uh, colleague and friend, Rui Tashiro, who wrote this. And he's written a lot about the the challenges of working class voters. I mean, it's not hard to imagine why you know, normal working middle class Americans might have uh, might not be completely down with the, the climate policies yeah. of the Democratic left. Right. They mostly won't need cheap, available energy. Right. And if, if you are for that, they'll be with you. If you frame everything as fighting climate change, which is an important goal, that's not really what they're for. So the appeal of electric vehicles isn't there yet. It's kind of complicated to take advantage of some of these tax credits. Um, they mostly aren't willing, because of inflation, to pay any more for energy. And the idea uh, that we're seeing in the data there is that working class voters look at this and say, wow, these, these climate policies look like it just means expensive energy. So mm-hmm. if you don't take the transition part, like how do you get to uh, cleaner sources of energy and, and energy independence for the whole country. How do you do it in a way uh, that doesn't break the bank? Because if not, you'll lose everybody politically. I mean, so true. You know, and that, the- that transition is so important. And that's something that really gets lost in the political conversation because it's it, it's a real operational feat to make that mm-hmm. transition so that you're not over relying on the new one before the infrastructure is ready to accommodate it. Yeah, exactly. And I, I think Biden, to his credit, has, has, has sort of talked about it, all of the above mix and the more moderate Democrats have. I mean, you can't go immediately to uh, all clean forms of energy. We don't have the transmission lines. It's We're not, not set up to do it yet. And, you know, and people also are, are used to natural gas and, and, and they like their, their cars. So you have to think about what people actually want and browbeating them to accept mm-hmm. a change won't work. It has to be financially viable and something they can believe in. Yes, agreed. Uh, And I find a lot of politicians are in the business of telling people what they think they should want and then shaming and blaming them when they actually say, no, I don't want that. Um, It's it's an important insight. That's why it is independence. Absolutely. So you had a recent newsletter that I found really interesting. It cited a poll that uh, this is about the media now and what the media plays Uh too much, pays too much attention to. So most Americans think the media focuses too much on things like celebrities, Trump's legal dramas, transgender issues, the quote-unquote wokeness, and not enough on things like corruption, housing and homelessness, mental health, inflation, border security, social media, uh, sort of kind of like they're focusing too much on the easy things and not enough on the hard things that actually affect people's lives much more intimately. However, this, yeah. is, this is my question to you, John Halpin of the Liberal Patriot, that people are the, – the media companies are getting rewarded because they're getting the clicks and the advertising dollars when they talk about these things that people say they don't want. Are they, are they lying to the pollsters or are they just trying to sound like they're more uh, serious <laughs> than they really are? No, I don't think they're lying. I mean, it, you know, you see it in multiple areas. I thought that uh, this data were fascinating. Yeah. I, I think what it's telling you is that they think po- modern politics, to, you know, to get back to the independence thing, is not dealing with the nation's biggest problems and their own biggest problems. They hear kind of politics as entertainment, politics as performance art. Mm. And it's not that they don't react to it. I mean, you know, stories involving Trump or some scandal or something else tend to draw eyes. It doesn't mean they're lying about what they want. 
Um, and, you know, the papers will come back and say, well, you know, we do in-depth stuff on international affairs or housing and nobody needs it. And that may be true. Um, but at the same time, it doesn't mean American democracy is any better off by focusing on this other stuff. And if the voters are telling us, hey, it'd be great if you put aside some of these culture wars, then let's deal with the energy transition. Let's deal uh, with the issues on inflation. Um, you know, what's going on with China and Russia? Let's make sure we're all on board on things like this. So I think he, people underestimate um, the sensibility of the American people and mm. our political order in general does, and that's the problem. And the media doesn't help for the most part. There's lots of good media covering stuff. You're right, it doesn't get the clicks. Mm-hmm. And then they have to actively choose to be better in some ways, just as politicians have to choose to be better. Yes, and I think people, you know, in these very uncertain times when people, there's a lot of anxiety about growing divisions, people want that reassurance that someone's actually in charge because, you know, politics is in some part performance art. There have always been political stunts. You know, you got to make a brand for yourself. But government plays really important operational roles. You know, the sewage has to run. The bridges have to stay up. We have to have uh, folks keeping us safe here and abroad. These these are really important things, and I and and I'm wondering if this poll reflects that people are feeling anxious that there's nobody really watching the store and operating operating these very important governmental functions. Yeah, it's a great point. I mean, if you if you can, uh, if you compare it to data on trust in government and institutions, you can see the real problem here. There's a lot. There's a critical lack of public support. Not theoretically for government. They're always saying we need the government to do more. They just don't think it's doing it or doing it right. And so you see these numbers on Congress or the courts or, you know, some of the agencies do quite well, you know, FEMA, other things like that, ones that are, are, you know, the Social Security Administration, things like that. But in general, they don't think the country's leaders are paying attention to the right things Mm -hmm. and that the the political order, particularly Congress, is not functional enough to to, to handle these problems. And it's true. I mean, every bill basically comes down to some crisis moment at the end and people are like, why can't you sensibly think through this on yeah. an issue by issue basis? Yeah. So, uh, but people haven't given up on the government. In fact, support ideologically for government is as high as it's ever been. It's just the performance measures are, are, are quite low in people's minds and, and people tend to think that state and local governments do better. Um, part of this is just the, you know, the bifurcated nature nature of national politics, uh, and some of it actually is a, a performance issue. So. so I'm speaking with John Halpin, who is a founder and writer for the Liberal Patriot Substack, which I am a loyal reader and subscriber. So, John, with what you're talking about, uh, bifurcated government, uh, I want to end with where we started with this poll. Forty nine percent of U.S. adults identify as political independence. Wall Street Journal just came out with something that I read this morning saying a Trump v. Biden matchup is looking ever more likely. Do you think that number in the middle is going to grow because of this? I mean, a lot of people are are holding their noses when thinking about either of these two guys. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, you're exactly right. When people think they're like, please, please spare us, you know, can we can we not? And the problem with the U.S. presidential system is it, it's interminable. I mean, why why do we start the presidential election 18 months out? I mean, other democracies can do this fairly quickly. I get their parliamentary systems, but it's like we have to sit through this for for two years. And if it's a repeat of Trump and Biden. Uh, you know, Americans are wise to sort of just check out until the final three months yeah. and make a decision again. You're not going to learn a lot between now and then. In fact, you'll just you'll just get angry and you're not 
um, abdicating your civic duty by doing that, you're being sane and protecting yourself because it's not, you don't learn a lot of that process. So, yeah, and a lot of people are nervous about the age of the two yeah. uh, leaders and they want to see some new blood. But, um, you know, we'll see. I mean, I, I guess the best thing is just uh, keep living your life and, and, and try and, and focus on the country's problems and push off presidential politics as long as po- possible because nothing good's going to happen. And there's always lots of local local politics, and I would exactly. I would argue that local politics affects your life much more intimately. John Halpin of the Liberal Patriot Substack, thank you so much. And listeners, I would encourage you to subscribe. It's free and it's always interesting. John, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah. You got it. All right. Up next on Cut to the Chase, I, Laura Curran, will be speaking to State Senator Monica Martinez of Long Island about what the heck is going on, as John Katzmatidi says, in Albany. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly two million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50 percent of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Laura Curran joining us live. It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran on 77 WABC. Welcome back to Cut to the Chase. So if you've been listening to this show for the past few weeks, uh, you will be as obsessed as I am with what's going on in Albany with the budget. It's 23 days late. uh, And I always like to get someone on the inside to tell me what's happening. So I'm very happy to introduce New York State Senator Monica Martinez to the program. Hello, Senator. You. I'm great. So uh, you are now one of, of one of the two, you're sort of an endangered species of Democratic senators from Long Island. And uh, do you find that you have a particular kind of pressure because you're just one of the few now representing a very purple, very purple region? Yes and no. Uh, one, because we all have to work collaboratively regardless of party lines. But in terms of having a seat at the table, yes, I am the only one from Suffolk County. And therefore, my responsibility is to not only listen to my colleagues from the other side of the aisle, but also listen to my constituencies and bring that to the table when having this conversation with leadership. So what is the latest? What are you hearing about the timing and about the big issues being debated right now behind closed doors? Well, the biggest issues have been revolving housing, bail, um, the uh, good cause eviction, your your charter schools. You know, so it's it's a big budget um, that includes a lot of policy, more than usual. Right. It's and, not just the numbers. As we think of a budget, it, it's sort of happened. It's evolved over the years where a lot of policy that may be controversial gets shoved into the budget just so that it gets done more quickly. And I've always had an opposition to that. I think certain policy issues should not be spoken. I mean, should not be talked into budget um, feelings only because they are very uh, intense. You know, there's a lot of components that go into it. 
And sometimes putting it in the budget when you don't have enough time where you really need to pass a budget to keep government going, mm -hmm. these are policy issues that should not even be, be in there. Uh, so that's really what's being held up as to why we have not passed the budget. We are to return tomorrow morning uh, to gavel back in at 11 a.m. and go from there. And tomorrow through Wednesday is regular session days, but obviously hoping that the budget uh, keeps moving and we can have a budget this week. But again, that's very unclear. By the way, listeners, um, I, I interviewed Monica Martinez when she was running for uh, in a primary, in a very interesting primary. If you want to go back and listen to Cut to the Chase Extra, it's actually a good, a really good podcast. I got a lot of good feedback on it. Uh, I won't get into it now because we don't have time. But you were in the Senate and then you were voted out for two years and now you're back. Does it feel different now? In a way, only because we have new members. Uh a new representation from different people, new districts. Uh, so the district that I had in the past, when I was there back in 2018, it was the South Shore of Long Island, Suffolk County. Now my district encompasses Central Suffolk and um, and Suffolk. So now I only have the townships of Babylon and Islip, when in the past I had Islip and Brookhaven. Right, so it's a different constituencies, different people up in Albany as well. But Definitely the two years away has helped me grow, uh, not just as a person, but honestly, uh, politically mm -hmm. and, and really navigating certain situations on how to on how to bring things home. Right. How, mm -hmm. you know, they say bring the bacon home. Right. Um, but honestly, is really learning how to navigate the ways and listening to everybody, sometimes speaking softly and carrying that big stick, big stick goes a lot further than having these arguments. Right. I think it's very incumbent upon ourselves as elected officials to not only listen, but to hear those two words are very different yeah. uh, and, and effectively and efficiently communicate what the constituencies that we represent, what they want, what they're looking for, and really striking that balance. I think finding that balance is sometimes the most difficult part. But I think when you have these conversations, you can come to a compromise. Not everybody's going to be happy, but at least everyone was listened to and heard. Yeah, I, I think, you know, something that's really accelerated is the activist, what I call the activist class, kind of graduating to becoming either staffers or elected officials themselves. And so you're seeing a lot of the way the debate is happening it seems to be a lot less compromise and a lot more yelling. And, uh, you know, this, for instance, you mentioned good cause eviction, which is something the very progressive folks are looking for. It's basically rent control for the whole for, for everybody, you know, just completely uh, simplifying it. Um, you're, you're seeing uh, some of your colleagues w walking around Albany, you know, saying tax the rich along with chanting with protesters, you know, some tax the MFing rich, as I've talked about before on this. Is it, you know, you're someone who is, uh, you're, you seem to be more about your constituents than you are about the drama and the theater of it all. Do you, you you talked about speaking softly and carrying a big stick. How do you get that message across to your leadership if you're not necessarily the loudest, most performative voice in the room? And that's a great question. You don't need to be aggressive nor yell. And when I go to the leader, I say, and to leadership as a whole, and this includes the governor as well and, and, the, um, and our leader in the Senate, uh, Andre Stewart-Cousin, it's more of like, can we sit down and talk? Do you have a few minutes for me? And it's one-on-one, -on -one, right? Instead of when we're all together, 
and voicing our opinions and voicing our concerns, I feel I get more done when I speak to them on the side by myself with them without having anybody else hear what I'm trying to say because for the fear of someone either leaking what I'm saying or for the fear of someone's going to be condescending in terms of what I'm thinking and what my constituencies want. You know, so for me, I think I've been effective this time around, at least more effective in terms of communicating what the constituencies want is by speaking one-on-one with leadership. So let's talk, Turkey, a little bit about some of these policy issues in the budget. I'm reading, as I'm sure you are, you probably know a lot more than I, that the housing compact is out. That's not going to be part of the budget. Is that is that true? From what we've heard, from what I've heard, yes. And even with that, no one is saying we don't need housing, right? And that's something that we need to clarify because people are saying, well, Long Island doesn't want housing and Long Islanders are suffering too. We know that. Mm -hmm. We know that we have a lack of housing. No one is debating that. What I was advocating for as chair of local government is listen to the local governments and the jurisdictions, right? Let them come up with a plan. Do not override local control, local zoning. We are a home rule state. Keep it in the local authorities. Now, listen, do have, have we seen a lack of housing in some areas? 100%. But we've also seen housing happening around transit-oriented areas, right? Our, our train stations, you'll see it in Wine Dance in my community. I used to represent Patchogue. Patchogue also did transit-oriented uh, development. Farmingdale. You know, so you are, you are seeing it. And it's not that we're not doing it, but when you threaten that if you do not meet a certain target of housing at a certain time, we will then review and possibly take away your local control. That's yeah, something that it did not go over well. It did not, right? And of course, as myself as chair of local government and listening to 62 counties and all the mayors within the state, I heard them loud and clear. And my job as chair is to voice those concerns and represent them as best I can. Um, and I've been fighting this, this fight for them. State Senator Monica Martinez, we have 15 seconds left. What are you hearing on bail? On bail, um, I believe from what we've heard, the governor has been able to reach an agreement with both the Assembly and the Senate. Um, again, our whole point is trying to make people safe in the state of New York. And if people are not feeling safe, we have to figure out the reasons and fix them so our communities can feel safe, right? And we all know that the intent of bail was to not lock someone up because they couldn't afford bail. That was the initial intent, but we all very well know that it went too far and we were having individuals who are inflicting more crime in our communities than they should have, you know, and bail has been reformed and reformed and reformed. And there's still some pieces that are missing, such Mm -hmm. as your repeat offenders. These repeat offenders should not be on the streets every single day, right? So, I believe the governor and both uh, the speaker and the leader have come to an agreement. I'm not sure what that agreement is, but hopefully it makes New York safer. Monica Martinez reporting from inside the Sausage Factory, uh, state senator representing a big chunk of Long Island. Thank you for your work and thanks for coming on Cut to the Chase. Up next. Thank you so much. Thank you. Up next, NYPD Commissioner Keyshawn Sewell. Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. 
Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Laura Curran joining us live. It's Cut to the Chase with Laura Curran on 77 WABC. Hey, thanks for sticking with us here at WABC. Special shout out to everyone listening on the app or streaming at WABCradio.com. So I had the chance to sit down with NYPD Commissioner Keyshawn Sewell this week. And, she, you know, she's been trained by the FBI as a hostage negotiator. She was actually the chief hostage negotiator when she was at the Nassau County Police Department. And I asked her about that. So the- that was probably one of the, the the best parts of my career, being a hostage negotiator, a crisis negotiator. So the skills do translate in, into uh, what we do every day, what anybody does every, any day, which is uh, labeling emotions, uh, being able to determine what the person wants, making sure you listen, have active listening skills. So um, I think when you are in an environment in policing, when you have to deal with a number of different personalities to be able to determine uh, what is their focus, what is their contribution, what do they want to be uh, known for? Are they looking to make a splash? Are they looking to um, just get some sort of advancement? Or are they looking to cooperate with the situation at hand? So I think those active listening skills that we learn in negotiation and that we practice uh, come in very handy. Yeah, I'm sure, because there are difficult personalities everywhere in oh, everybody's workplace. Just a few. <laughs> <laughs> and the more you have that, what Mayor Adams called that emotional intelligence, being able to read the signals that may not be spoken is incredibly helpful. It is very helpful. So I want to talk about uh, just very broadly and then drill down a little bit. How are the numbers? How are we doing here in New York City? So the numbers are very encouraging. We are in a dramatically different place than we were uh, last year. When, before this administration came in, shootings were at a 15 year high. Uh, homicides were up, uh, major crime across the board and the major categories were up. We, we re- recognized that the first thing we need to do was get a handle on the violence, on the guns, the shootings um, overall in the city. So we put in place initiatives to be able to address that first and they worked. Um, shootings and homicides are down double digits. Now, the first quarter of 2023, you're down in five of the seven major categories in the city. Transit is down a seven or eight percent as well year to date. So uh, we recognize that while we had to stop the violence, we still had to address the other crimes as well and address quality of life across the city. And the numbers that we are seeing are very encouraging and, and they're going to continue to trend in the right direction. You know, I have to say, as someone who comes to New York City regularly now, um, walking across Midtown a lot, I do. it feels different. It feels mm-hmm. better. However, the issue of crime is still very politically charged. Not to mention, it does affect real people's lives as well. But I just want to talk the politics of it for a second. Bail reform, you've called it criminal justice reform, is a real political football. And you have politicians bloviating on both sides of the aisle, frankly. You have, you know, the decarceration crowd versus someone like Jim Jordan coming to New York City to basically crap on New York City. Meanwhile, you... And your officers and your detectives have to do the actual work. And I've got to imagine the political pressure gets not just annoying, but also gets in the way of what you're trying to accomplish, which is keeping people safe. Well, that is always going to be my focus. I am focused on keeping the city safe and making sure that people feel safe, too, in the city. So I focus on what we need to do that. 
And when we talk about bail reform, as you said, I think we do ourselves a disservice just calling it bail reform. There are a number of different components that are attached to that legislation that uh, presents an issue for us. There are discovery aspects of it. There was raised the age before that. Uh, a number of things come into play when we talk about criminal justice reform. So I'm focusing on trying to advocate for the fact that judges need to be able to determine if someone is a public safety threat uh, when they determine whether to remand, set bail or release. And uh, when we talk about youth crimes, as we see uh, every day in the city, our, our shooters are getting younger, our yeah. victims are getting younger and younger. So for judges being able to look at the whole picture of, of a youth that's brought into uh, the youth part of the criminal justice system, I think is important as well. But we focus on New York City. We focus on the people of the city, the victims of the city, the businesses of the city, and I'll leave the politics to someone else. Do the politicians ever consult you with what you're seeing on the ground or... Does it not work like that? We have a great relationship. We actually started a system where we send out email blasts to our elected officials to let them know what's happening in their communities and with their constituents so they can see what we see every single day. And we we, we expect the feedback. We expect to be able to talk and have a conversation about what we can do better and what we can do collaboratively. So talking about the community, building trust is fundamental to your job. People trust your officers that nothing is more important than that, that there is the two-way communication. There is that trust has frayed in the past several years, how do you bind it back together again? What do you do? We can't do anything without the community and we need the community to trust the police. It's been a, a challenging few years for policing in general, and that's just not just in New York City, that's really across the nation. But nothing is better than going to the community and finding out what they want from their police department. Uh, this month, actually last month, we started the first community CompStat. Everybody knows what CompStat is. It's been around for uh, decades, uh, probably the greatest crime fighting tool uh, in policing. So how do we make that better? We bring the community into the CompStat process, being able to have them come into the Jack Maple Conference Room in one police plaza through virtual um, means to tell the police department uh, what the challenges are in their communities. But it's also good for them to see how we hold their commanders accountable as well for what's happening in those neighborhoods. Uh, something as small as derelict vehicles all the way up to a condition for drug use in an area. But having that interaction on a daily basis with our community council hearings, with the meetings that our commanders have uh, across the board, letting them know that we're in this together, I think is going to make the difference. So you being the public face along with the manager of this very big police department, it's inevitable that you will be criticized. Anyone in a leadership position, especially something like this, does get criticized. Uh, I was reading recently that the Civilian Complaint Review Board recommended, uh, I think it was about 750 officers get disciplined in a certain way. You said more than half of those, I'm not going to take your recommendation. And there was criticism for that. How do you handle that? So I want to correct that right now. That is not what happened. Okay, because that's uh, what I read in the paper. <laughs> that is absolutely not what happened. Um, I actually have an internal affairs background. And if anyone thinks that I don't think officers should be disciplined appropriately, they are completely wrong. Mm. And then it could not be further from the truth. So if you want to listen to the rest of my conversation with NYPD Commissioner Keyshawn Sewell, check out my podcast. It's very creatively called Cut to the Chase Extra. And you can find it wherever you get your con uh, podcasts. I talked to her about the challenge of recruitment and retention in these times of police officers and what it's like to be the first female to lead uh, this force of 50,000 people, both sworn and civilian. All right. I promise to take your calls. And is Ben still on the line or is he gone? Oh, you know what? We're out of time. I'm very sorry. Please call back next time and I will do better to get to you. Thank you so much for tuning in to Cut to the Chase. We have Positively Ernie and Patricia with some dose of good news, some good endorphins coming up next.